This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon steps outside of academia to speak with investment expert Jonathan Tepper. I'm very pro markets and I'm very pro competition, so I'm in no way anti-capitalist. I think that the problem is we've confused being pro-big business with being pro-capitalism. And I think that if people who are not pro-capitalist do not reform markets, then others who are certainly against capitalism are going to reform it in ways that are not good for any of us. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. In case you haven't noticed, in the US there's a vigorous debate going on about levels of concentration in the economy. Big tech, of course, is at the heart of this debate. Some say it epitomizes the problem. For others, it's the one bright spot. In today's episode, you'll hear from someone outside the ivory tower. Jonathan Tepper, investment advisor, author, and a former online entrepreneur himself, is the co-author of a new book, The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. For Jonathan and the many others rallying to this cause, Capitalism in America is dying. In making the diagnosis, he and co-author Denise Hearn highlight a host of economic indicators as symptoms of the disease, and they point the finger squarely at lax antitrust enforcement as a leading cause. The book's hot off the press, and it's already won a string of glowing endorsements. So, fortunate to catch him before he headed off on book tour, I asked Jonathan to share his research with us. Viva Voce style, I also asked him to defend his thesis against the various lines of attack marshalling on the other side of the debate. First though, I wanted to know just what set him off on the path of writing this particular book. I really was trying to answer a question that I had uh, for myself and for clients. So I started an economic research group and what we try to do is build leading economic indicators to tell us whether growth is going to be going up or down or whether wages are going to be going up or down. And we had a specific leading indicator for wages in the U.S. And even as the employment market was tightening over the last decade, we didn't really see almost any increase in wages. So I thought our indicator might be broken, and I decided to do some research and try to find out why. And it was really sort of going down that rabbit hole that led me to conclude that industrial concentration meant there was less competition and then greater power for companies over workers. And that was really the start of this book project, essentially delving into the death of competition. And you say capitalism without competition is not capitalism. Well, I think that capitalism has two elements, if not more, but two central elements. And one is obviously private property. That battle was won with the fall, essentially, of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall. Private property globally has really won out. The other element is competition, meaning that for the invisible hand to work, you need to have uh, clear signals on pricing to be able to induce the correct amounts of supply. And the truth is that when you look at the landscape in the United States in particular, but it is happening in other countries, what we've seen are fewer and fewer players, enormous barriers to entry. Some are regulatory, others essentially are through the abuse of market power. 
but we've ended up with far fewer players in most industries and therefore no real competition. Or we've ended up with tight oligopolies, which actually collude, which means that there isn't competition. And to that extent, it distorts capitalism. Would you say that the digital sector is a case study for your general conclusions about the broken state of capitalism? I certainly think that it could be considered a poster boy for the problems. The book looks at dozens of industries that have seen a decline in competition. The tech industry probably is the most extreme. The internet was meant to be open, free, anarchic, and now basically we have two companies essentially completely dominating what people find and see. You're not alone in your views about concentration being too high and continuing to rise in the US. We've heard similar views in the popular press. They're being promulgated by progressive think tanks. They've been co-opted by politicians left and right, and they've even made it into the ivory tower at the University of Chicago, home of Milton Friedman. But there is also stiff opposition to the thesis as set out in your book. It's along two broad lines of attack, and I want to put these to you and get the benefit of your views. The first is that it said assertions about concentration being too high, being manifested in excessive market power, are just not supported by hard evidence. What would you say to that? Uh, well, first of all, the idea of consumer welfare and that allowing companies to merge creates more efficiency and lower prices is just not supported by the evidence. And there's dozens and dozens of studies that show that work by John Quoka in particular, which has a database of mergers. So it fails on its own merits in terms of consumer welfare. But then moving beyond that, you have poor effects on wages, on startups and economic dynamism, and on productivity, and it also destroys localism. So there are non-price elements that are horrible, but even on price elements, highly concentrated industries raise prices. What would you say are the best measures for concentration when thinking about antitrust implications? Well, the most obvious ones are the ones that everyone seems to agree on, which is obviously the HHI index and CR4. I think those are the two most obvious, but they really only focus on product markets. And obviously, you can then decide what is a market or what is not. And then the University of Chicago and others have talked about contestability. So even there, you could presume new entrants that don't exist. So I think that clearly defining end markets is an art, not a science. Those are the ones that I mainly have looked at in the book. When you think about the HHI, as a measure, it could actually underestimate concentration because of the issue of common ownership by institutional investors? Uh, so I think that there are two issues that would cause it to be understated. One you just identified, which is the common ownership. So essentially horizontal shareholdings. And the other issue is essentially a tacit collusion, which is that highly concentrated industries end up becoming highly cooperative and not competing. And so therefore, what might appear to be an oligopoly with intense competition between, let's say, four players, in fact, turns out to function very much like a highly ordered monopoly. And you can see that industry after industry. And the estimates generally are that only about one in five instances of collusion is actually caught. So the problem is orders of magnitude higher than is even perceived. Mm. I've always wondered about those studies that estimate the percentage of cartels that are detected given we don't know what we don't know. We don't know how many are not detected. But isn't it wrong-headed to rely on correlations between concentration and competition? Because 
high concentration could mean strong competition, just as it could mean the opposite. Don't you need some hard evidence of a causal relationship? I certainly agree that one should always look for causal relationships. One is obviously that you'd have to see price increases and supply reductions post-merger. That's evidenced in many studies. And then other things you would have to see would be, for example, increased markups and pricing power post-merger. What's quite clear is that the high returns that large companies experience really comes not from a more efficient use of assets, but rather from pricing power. And sometimes this is exerted over the consumer. Sometimes it's exerted over workers uh, through lower wages and other times by squeezing suppliers. And so if you look at industries pre and post consolidation, this is very clear. And so therefore, I think that gets to your point about causation rather than correlation. You refer to markups and certainly markups are an accepted indicator of market power, but increased markups may be required for the efficiency of markets in which fixed costs investments are necessary, particularly investments in technology. So higher markups might not necessarily mean high profits. And it's important, I guess, then to look at changes in profitability. What did you find on that score? These markups are present with extremely high profitability. And in some cases, you are right, there might be essentially initial fixed costs. But many industries that essentially don't exhibit those characteristics see pricing power that's above and beyond the rate of inflation and happens essentially regardless of the underlying economics of the industry. And these unsurprisingly happen post-merger and sometimes, in fact, happen before the merger even closes once it gets to the regulatory approvals. And so it's pretty clear that it's higher pricing that allows this. You also talk about a drop-off in startups and collapses in IPOs. High profits would be less of a concern if there was a high rate of churn, if market power and incumbency rents were temporary because of new entry. What were your findings in relation to churn in the US economy? We've seen a complete collapse in startups, and it includes the high technology sector. It's across the board. Over 50% of public companies have disappeared essentially since 1997. We've seen essentially a collapse in in IPOs. So it, it is very much across the board, this lack of economic dynamism. Speaking of startups and Silicon Valley, you liken Silicon Valley to the jungle. Tell us about that analogy. Sure. So this, I would love to claim credit for this analogy, but actually this came from a hedge fund that loves investing in tech companies that he and his hedge fund considered to be monopolies. And he said, this is basically like the triple canopy in a jungle. And as you approach a jungle, it's very difficult to walk at all. You know, people carry machetes as they hack their way through. But once you get into the heart of the jungle, basically you have extraordinarily high trees. You have three separate layers, which is why they call it the triple canopy and nothing grows below. So there's almost nothing on the ground because only 2% of the sunlight even reaches it. And the analogy that he used was that you have essentially Facebook, Google, and Amazon, these very large companies, and there's no sunlight reaching the small startups. And so the only option essentially is to sell themselves because in order to go about their business, they have to rely on the infrastructure and reach of the bigger companies. So essentially, it's choking off the sunlight that might get to these startups. You cite a rather astonishing figure in the book that between them, GAFM, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Microsoft have bought over 436 companies and startups in the last decade, and none of them have been challenged. I've got to ask you, though, Jonathan, you were one of these startup founders when you founded Demetix, this citizen journalism 
website and photo agency. And you ended up selling out to a company that was then owned by Bill Gates. So, I mean, certainly we shouldn't begrudge startup founders from setting out with the intention of selling. And wouldn't we disincentivize startups if they didn't readily have that option? Well, my point is not that it's bad that founders sell. And we sold, and in part it's because we were operating essentially in a duopoly with uh, Corvus and Getty. So the bigger problem is why you don't have companies competing, why you don't have venture capitalists funding companies that might compete with these companies. And then certainly what you end up with is often abusive conduct by the large companies themselves, which can essentially force the startups to sell because they can't access either their direct consumers or they're going to end up in a massive price war, for example, like with Amazon in the case of diapers or in other cases where Amazon is supposedly an impartial third party allowing free commerce sales, but then they have the data on what sells and doesn't, and then essentially compete and crush the people who they're supposed to be essentially at arm's length, helping them do their digital sales. You've referred to the difficulties for startups now obtaining funding, certainly if they're in what one venture capitalist called the kill zone. You're an investment advisor, Jonathan. Would you advise your clients to invest in a promising startup that would be seeking to compete in one of the many digital market spaces occupied by the top five? So I would have to wear two hats. One, obviously, is I write a book about the adverse social consequences. And then another one would be to say, well, if you were a private person, what would you like to own? And almost everyone would like to own a monopoly. What's good for the monopolist is not good for society at large. And I think that this is why laws and regulations have to step in to make sure that companies and markets do function for the benefit of society rather than for the monopolist. I talk about Buffett and Peter Thiel and others who have derived an immense amount of wealth by buying companies that dominate markets. And I think that in many cases, these companies have not become monopolists because they're the best operator or because they have an enormous market share because they're good, but rather because they've either bought competitors or they've influenced legislation to the point where they've created insurmountable barriers to entry. So we've talked about a variety of indicators that your book documents in detail suggesting that competitive intensity is on the wane in the US economy. What would you say to the suggestion that even if these indicators point to a competition problem in some perhaps many economic sectors, the tech sector itself bucks the trend because tech companies are leading in R&D spending, they're attracting record VC investment, and while labour share wages and investment are flat or down across the economy and gross margins up, these trends are actually reversed in tech. It's the bright spot. Clearly, there is quite a lot of R&D spending in the tech companies. I don't think in many cases it's actually quite a lot to show for it. Google throughout its history has essentially been a search engine with an M&A arm attached to it, which is why they were able to buy DoubleClick and vertically integrate the ad industry. But Google X has produced fairly little in terms of things that might actually end up in market and change our lives. While big companies can spend on R&D, they generally fail to capitalize upon it themselves. And you can see that whether you're looking at, for example, Bell Labs, which had some quite extraordinary innovations. AT&T did almost nothing with those innovations, and they were essentially licensed out to the public. And then looking at the case of Xerox, for example, they had the Palo Alto Research Center, truly extraordinary the amount of things that were created there. But actually, it took other companies to then be able to take these public. So big companies essentially are highly bureaucratic and generally not the best companies at 
exploiting their own insights and designs. Well, let's unpack then what might be driving these changes. Your thesis, as I read it, is essentially that firms aren't made to earn their market power anymore, that they're building, protecting and extending it courtesy of lax antitrust laws and enforcement. Do you see this as a problem of intellectual foundation for the antitrust movement? If you look at the history of scientific thought and then you look at the history of antitrust itself, what we generally see is there's a pendulum back and forth or you have changes and shifts in paradigm. And I think that what's happened is that if you look at the period from the 50s up until the late 70s, chances are antitrust was too restrictive and no companies were allowed to merge. And then essentially the intellectual consensus that came out of that that's probably influenced many of the people operating today is that we need to avoid that and we need to make sure that we can get some scale and efficiency. But now we've essentially gone so far the other direction that we're seeing the opposite harms, which is too little competition. And I think that the pendulum is going to swing. It's already swinging. Could there be other dimensions at work here, problems relating to institutional, and I'm talking about the DOJ and FTC, constraints on budget or on expertise? Well, what's absolutely certain and undeniable is that the U.S. specifically has never spent less in real dollars, inflation-adjusted dollars on antitrust. So this is clearly something that is a very low priority, something where there's very little spending going on it. So the FTC and DOJ in practice are do-nothing institutions, and what we see is rampant non-enforcement of the law. And that's really where we find ourselves. Do you think there's political interference at work here, Jonathan? I think there certainly is. I cite studies that show that politically connected companies are more likely to receive approval than companies that do not have revolvers going in and out of government. But I mean, this is really all at the margins because over 90% of mergers go through and the only ones that don't tend to be due to cold feet or market volatility like the financial crisis. It's not due to any antitrust activity or involvement. The DOJ and FTC are essentially irrelevant when it comes to stopping mergers that might be anti-competitive. Do you see the tide shifting though, given Donald Trump's recent railings against the big tech companies? He seems to have Amazon particularly in his sights. I think that clearly he's doing it because he doesn't like the fact that the press criticizes him and the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. And while I do think that we need a lot more antitrust, I think that it certainly should not come from a politically motivated angle. It should be a thoughtful and considered approach. And I think that Donald Trump is the antithesis of thoughtfulness. Okay, so the thesis is, as I said, that firms are not being made to earn their market power. But of course, you'll be aware there's a counter argument here. And that's exactly the opposite, that firms are earning supersized market power and successively extending it because of repeated success in investing and innovating to distinguish themselves from their rivals, or indeed by cutting costs and just becoming more efficient and more productive. Do you have a response to that? Uh, Yes. I mean, I would say that that's total bullshit, but on a more thoughtful response, whenever anyone picks an industry and tells me that a company's gotten very big, I generally point to specific mergers over time that allowed them to get big. Most of these companies, in almost all cases, did not get big because they won market share by being extraordinarily innovative. What happened is they bought their rival 
and managed to get market share that way. And then the result of that has been greater market power and pricing. So there are very few examples where one company is just so good that they have 90 or 100% market share and it's because everyone picks them. Generally, it's because they've bought competitors and acquired market share. And there's a related issue here. Those that are of the view that these firms that we're speaking of have earned their power also counsel enforcement authorities to be highly cautious in intervening in fast-moving, innovation-driven markets. And their concern is that if you are not sufficiently cautious, there will be unintended or unanticipated chilling of innovation. Now, this was a perspective offered by Google's chief economist, Hal Varian, in episode 15 of the podcast. Well, I think that regulators and antitrust authorities should be appropriately humble about their ability to predict the future because we in the industry have certainly become pretty humble on that uh, ground. You don't want to intervene because there's some anticipated or expected or maybe bad thing that will happen down the road. You really want to have hard evidence that some particular behavior is causing problems Mm. that might be dealt with by competition authorities or by regulatory authorities. Thoughts on that account? It's quite clear that lawyers and economists who work on behalf of companies that want to get mergers through, they would think that. And so that's just to start out with. But if we look at specifically Google itself, they were allowed to buy DoubleClick. They essentially were able to consolidate the ad industry. And that really is not the result of any extraordinary technological shifts that were unanticipated. This was basically allowing them to take out display advertising when they had search. It's not like what's happening is companies are not being allowed to grow. What's happening is that they're buying competitors. And the harms that happen are often anticipated and anticipated correctly. And sure enough, when companies have market power, they exercise it. That's just human nature. Well, let's talk now a bit about the effects of the broken state of capitalism that you lay out in this book. I want to start with the economic effects. You isolate lower productivity and less innovation. So unpack that for us. And why it is that you say there's a problem with firms just getting bigger and bigger and bigger when we are thinking about innovation? Sure. So what you find is that in the very early stage of companies, the growth rate and productivity tends to be fairly high. As companies become much, much bigger, the basically growth rate slows down to zero. Once you factor out inflation and once you factor out the end growth in the market itself, large companies essentially stopped growing. And so one of the reasons why productivity declines is as we end up with fewer small companies and you end up with only very large companies that effectively have stopped growing, you end up with a lot of less innovation and productivity. In terms of economic effects, the other key area the book looks at is wages growth, which we talked about when we started out in the interview. And you point to labor market monopsony as having a role in this Share your thoughts on that with us. Certainly. So I don't think that there's any monocausal explanation for the decline in wages. There's not one factor. I do talk about global labor arbitrage, China joining the WTO. But I think that the role of industrial concentration has certainly been not discussed enough. The supply of labor is not perfectly elastic. You do end up with significant bargaining power on the part of companies. And we've seen a collapse in unions. And at the same time, we've seen a rise in concentration in companies. So this has become tremendously imbalanced. And when you discuss stagnant wages growth, you talk, of course, about inequality. But 
isn't inequality, at least to some extent, inherent in capitalism by its very nature? There's got to be winners and losers. The issue is not inequality. The issue is unjust inequality. And so capitalism will reward innovators and creators, and that's why we have patent systems, and that's why early entrants to markets that might see an opportunity are, are able to seize it. But the real issue is unjust inequality, and to the extent that large companies want to preserve or perpetuate monopolies and oligopolies and prevent new entrants from competing with them, then I would argue that that is a, an unjust inequality where it transfers money from consumers or workers to companies. If inequality is the problem here, then there are many who would argue it's not an antitrust problem, that there are a raft of other public policies that are far superior for tackling it, tax to begin with, social welfare, other policies relating to education and training might spring to mind. What would you say to those arguments? Well, I don't think that inequality should be a goal of antitrust. I think true competition would help reduce inequality. So I think it's a byproduct. It's not the ultimate objective. And I think that just to allow a lack of competition or mergers that should not happen and then think that you're going to solve it via the tax system, I think is a very misguided approach. I think what we have to do is fix antitrust because it's fundamentally broken on its own terms in terms of higher prices, in terms of less innovation and all these other things I've discussed. You also go on to say that broken markets create broken politics. What are your key concerns in a nutshell about the implications of concentration for the political process and perhaps for democracy generally? The reason why I say that broken markets create broken politics is that it's when companies essentially try to make sure that regulation and laws work to their advantages rather than to the advantage of the average person. That's what corrupts markets. And you can certainly see that if you're looking at the revolving door at the FTC or FCC, where people work for companies, get paid, argue in favor of specific mergers, join the FTC, then are essentially passing judgment on their previous companies or similar companies. And then you look at the revolving door between Google and the White House. A lot of this basically leads to a deeply corrupt system where the ultimate goal essentially is to look after clients rather than greater public welfare. Jonathan, you've put a huge amount of work into this book, but there's also a lot of passion behind it. And I know people are going to hear that from listening to you. Just what do you hope to achieve by having written it? So I did start writing the book in part due to that chart on wages. But another bigger, more overarching reason is that I'm very pro-markets and I'm very pro-competition. So I'm in no way anti-capitalist. I think that the problem is we've confused being pro-big business with being pro-capitalism. And I think that if people who are not pro-capitalist do not reform markets, then others who are certainly against capitalism are going to reform it in ways that are not good for any of us. And I think that the rise of essentially the idea that the markets are rigged, Trump said that, Sanders said that, Corbyn said that, you're going to get responses from people who don't like capitalism and it's going to make us all worse off. So that's where I think partly the passion comes from. There's no doubt passion, but there's also a wealth of research being invested in the issues raised in Jonathan's book. They're issues that are the subject of a round of public hearings being conducted by the FTC, and they're coming up in conferences in which we see antitrust academics lining up on each side of the debate. 
Clearly, they're issues that are relevant to, but go beyond big tech. And they've got broad implications for economies and antitrust generally, not just in the US. Next on Competition Law, as 2018 draws to a close, we look back over the first six months to see what we've learnt, some of the highlights and a few of the surprises and the laughs we've had along the way. In the meantime, you can find a link to Jonathan's book and suggestions of other ways in which you can lean into his thinking in the show notes. Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Beaton-Wells.